0: what's up folks thank you so much for tuning in to my very first podcast i'm very excited for the content that i have lined up for this series in which i will be sharing the bountiful knowledge that was bestowed upon me throughout this very long semester in amst 135 special shout out to Emmett and professor mcdaniel you both were absolutely wonderful Before I start, I would like to state a trigger warning as I will be discussing some pretty heavy topics about the mass genocide of the first indigenous populations in the Americas. So, I think it's important to share that I am from the South, specifically Dallas, Texas. And the thing about a state like Texas and especially being educated in an underfunded public school system is that the history curriculum tends to be, well, whitewashed, to say the least. We are taught that Christopher Columbus discovered America and it's this wonderful thing that is celebrated because without him, we wouldn't be the superpower that we are today and yada, 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 yada. But they conveniently leave out the part about the mass genocide enacted against the indigenous populations across Latin America. Now, isn't that something? I've always known that the colonization of the Americas was awful, obviously, but quite frankly, I never knew to what extent until this class. I think the most mind-boggling text that we studied this semester was A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies by Bartolome de las Casas. In a nutshell, this text is a repetitive, gruesome, and depraved register of injustice, violence, sexual and otherwise, torture, slavery, suicide, and murder told through the guise of the testimonial genre. Overall, it's a really sad read. During one of our lectures, Professor McDaniel gave a conservative estimate of the magnitude of this genocide to be about 12 to 15 million deaths committed by those claiming to be Christian. They don't teach you this in AP World History, at least not in Texas. What bothers me the most about these heinous acts is that they were blatant contradictions of Christian ethics. In what world is murder justified under Christianity? In what scriptures is it okay to eradicate entire populations for no apparent reason other than their existence and because you can? It's unforgivable. I'd like to circle back to the idea of narration in this text and the eyewitness account of Las Casas. Throughout the chapters in this text, Las Casas continuously states, As I have seen for myself. And he uses very descriptive language when referring to indigenous people. Descriptors like, Simplest people in the world with delicate constitutions who are totally uninterested in worldly power. Las Casas's objective with this text was to warn the Spanish crown of the atrocities that were happening in the Americas. And that if they didn't stop, God would destroy Spain as punishment. Thus, he gained the title of protector of the Indies, but this is problematic for numerous reasons. Las Casas advocated for indigenous people, but in his efforts, he actually proposed the idea of kidnapping people in Africa, and forcing them into slavery to give indigenous people a break. Furthermore, he begins this notion that black people are able to withstand more than anyone else, a sentiment that is unfortunately still upheld to this day. This begs the question, can we really give credence to Las Casas' title of protector if his solution is to subjugate another population? There is a disturbing image on page 16 of this text and the caption reads as follows. They spared no one, erecting especially wide gibbets on which they could string their victims up with their feet just off the ground and then burn them alive. Terrible, right? The image itself is pretty terrifying, as you can visibly see the countless bodies hanging right above a fire. It's devastating. And this is just a glimpse of the content written in this account, and clearly it can be a very hard read, as it was for me. Professor McDaniel posed the question, what are the ethics of reading a text like this? As students of the liberal arts, we're not participating in these acts, but we are reading about them. We are reading about the destruction of other communities. But others are reading their communities' histories. It's very easy to distance ourselves from the cruelty that surrounds us because the cruelty is not happening to us. But when distance and desensitization are not an option, what can we do? That's all the time we have for today, folks. Thanks once again for tuning in, and be on the lookout for my next episode, where I'll discuss sexuality as it relates to the Cuban Revolution. Stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of AMST 135 recap. I hope you're having a lovely day and thanks so much for tuning in. Today I'm talking about a rather favorite topic of mine, sexuality as it relates to the Cuban Revolution. Now this has many layers to unpack and I hope that I can do this topic some justice. I suppose it's important to talk about the events that inspired the Cuban revolution and how socialist ideology influenced the vision of the new man. But first, I'd like to talk about Cuba's relationship to the US, specifically during the era of the prohibition, which lasted from 1923 through 1933. There's this poster that we were shown in lecture that pretty much promotes tourism in Cuba. It has a beautiful indigo-blue background, and in its center, a cheerful woman holding maracas with the text, Visit Cuba. The heading at the top of the poster reads, So near and yet so far, 90 miles from Key West. (laughs) It's a very attractive advertisement. Cuba was referred to as the brothel of the Caribbean, because people from the U.S. who wanted to let loose would travel to Cuba. With the influx of U.S. capital in Cuba, it paved the way for massive amounts of corruption. We begin to see extreme polarization of wealth, large exclusive sectors that would leave many people out, the rise of a tourist economy and prevalent sex work that was a large pool for U.S. and Canadian visitors. In 1940, Fulgencio Bautista became president. In 1952, after facing electoral defeat, he staged a coup and established a dictatorship. And this is a pattern that is seen time and time again across Latin America. People become president, then they don't get reelected and somehow still remain in power, even if by force. The US later recognized Bautista's government and this is where things started to take a turn. In 1953, Fidel Castro led a failed attack on the Moncanda barracks, a military barracks in Santiago de Cuba and was tried in court. This led to his iconic declaration of history will absolve me, and the development of his five revolutionary laws. I won't get into those for the sake of time, but just know that they called for the massive redistribution of wealth that was being hoarded by the elites in Cuba. I'd like to read a quote from Castro's speech, which I believe encompasses the ideas behind his revolution. The problem of the land, the problem of industrialization, the problem of housing, the problem of unemployment, the problem of education, and the problem of the people's health. These are the six problems we would take immediate steps to resolve, along with restoration of civil liberties and political democracy. Fidel Castro believed that Cuba should be the pinnacle of freedom, free from U.S. hegemony with advanced economic and social justice. In 1959, the revolution was victorious and Bautista's regime ended, and in 1961, Castro declared the revolution socialist. Needless to say, the U.S. did not like this and neither did the many wealthy elites in Cuba. This resulted in the migration of 120,000 Cubans to the U.S. Because the wealthy Cubans supported the US anti-communist agenda, they were put on welfare and received treatment that other Cuban immigrants were not afforded. Funny how that works, isn't it? And wow, I didn't realize how much of the Cuban revolution I needed to cover before even beginning to talk about sexuality. I hope I haven't bored you with all of these details, but I guess the last thing I will mention before switching gears is that when Cuba became fully independent from US grasp, it needed some sort of economic alignment. And because of the magnitude of this movement and the support from Cuban society and other international countries, Castro aligned himself with the Soviet Union, leading to the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and the increased fear of nuclear war. That's all the time that we have for today, folks, but stay tuned for my next and final episode of this series, where I will finally get into sexuality, Che Guevara, and a newfound personal hero of mine, Reynaldo Arenas. Thanks for listening. And we are back for my final episode of this series. I hope my amazing audience is doing well, and thank you for tuning in. So to quickly summarize where we left off in my previous episode. Cuba is essentially in this period of rebuilding and reframing itself. It's working towards socialism and communist ideals and the transformation of Cuban society in all aspects. Ernesto Che Guevara was perhaps most influential in this transformation when he wrote his essay, Socialism and Man in Cuba. This is where we begin to see the framework for El Hombre Nuevo, or The New Man. Guevara quickly became the idealized figure of the Cuban Revolution. To quote Guevara, he states, To build communism, it is necessary, simultaneous with the new material foundations, to build the new man. A problematic statement because, as Professor McDaniel mentioned in lecture, many women made great strides in the revolution but were subsequently marginalized and erased from history. Hmm. He constantly references Marxist ideology and how the order of things are put in place by certain entities, encouraging the idea that it's okay to break away and contest them. The quote, the amount of poverty and suffering required for a Rockefeller to emerge and the amount of depravity entailed in an accumulation of a fortune of such magnitude, are left out of the picture. Essentially, it states that you don't get wealthy people without the exploitation of the working class. His entire essay is an argument for a new kind of man with a new kind of revolutionary consciousness in which man begins to free his thinking and strives to move away from the egocentrism and individualism that is rooted in capitalism to work towards the larger goal of unity under socialism and communism. It's a very ambitious goal, and yet, this small group of revolutionaries managed to dissipate the most Americanized country in all of Latin America. So there's all this talk about building a man, and revolutionizing men for the greater cause, but I don't know. For some reason, this doesn't seem all-inclusive to me. And you may be wondering how sexuality ties into any of this. Well, let me tell you. I suppose it all started with the establishment of UMAP camps, Military Units to Aid Production, in 1965. They were basically concentration camps where artists, intellectuals, gay men, religious people and really anyone who was considered counter-revolutionary were shipped off to to contribute on the sidelines of the revolution. It was an emasculating project that contradicted the idea of El Hombre Nuevo. I want to focus on the placement of gay men into these camps. A major theme explored in this class is this idea of testimonios, or personal testimonial accounts registered throughout history. I think my favorite text we studied this semester was Reynaldo Arenas's Before Night Falls. It's an account of Arenas' experience as an openly gay man fighting in the revolution. Disillusioned with his life of poverty at 14 years old, Arenas decides to join the revolution at a very young age. We have to assume that this decision was influenced by the ever-present ideas of Cuban propaganda as it relates to the revolution. In lecture, Professor McDaniel showed us many posters that contained the slogan Patria o Muerte. And these visuals help inform us of the extremities of the revolution. You're either with it or against it. You're either a a revolutionary or you aren't. Now you have to approach this text with the understanding that Arenas grew up in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, at a time when homosexuality was seriously denigrated. I think it's interesting to consider how this conflicts with Guevara's Hombre Nuevo, especially considering how Cuban nightlife, especially Havana nightlife, supported homosexuality. This was the great paradox of the revolution. As Professor McDaniel mentioned in lecture, same-sex desire was seen as an unwanted byproduct of bourgeois capitalist society and practices on Cuba by the US. Homosexuality was criminalized in Cuba, and openly gay men were shipped off to UMAP camps. And if the new man was not a gay man, then being gay was not on the right side of the revolution. When I first learned about Arenas, he immediately became a personal hero of mine. I identify as a gay man, and in Arenas I see a gay man who comes from poverty, who inserted himself into quite possibly the most toxic masculine environment of the time, and thereby had to repress his sexuality and avoid imprisonment or death, and became a quite successful revolutionary and later writer. His existence challenged and redefined what it meant to be a man in a political climate that idolized masculinity and machismo. And that's all the time that we have, folks. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you were able to get some great takeaways from this series. Until next time.